Hello, and welcome to the Genome Podcast. I'm Misha Angrist. I work at the Initiative for Science and Society at Duke University, and I'm the editor of Genome Magazine. Our first ever guest is Janine Austin. She is Associate Professor in the Department of Medical Genetics at the University of British Columbia. She holds the Canada Research Chair in Translational Psychiatric Genomics and is the Graduate Advisor for the UBC Genetic Counseling Training Program. I wanted to talk to her for two reasons. One, she is a badass in the field of genetic counseling. And two, she is a wonderful conversationalist. So here we go. Some toilet flushing and things as well from other people. Mm. It's always <laughs> good uh, ambient noise. Yeah. How and when did you become aware of genetic counseling as mm. a thing? So I think it was around 1996, and I was a co op student actually at Duke University. Um, so I was doing my undergrad at Bath in the UK, but you know, so we did um, eight month placements, and I happened to be at Duke. And Were you in Alan Rose's lab? I was. Yes, so um, I was too in 1989. Oh, okay. Um, so we didn't overlap there. No. No, okay. And uh, I met all these wonderful people from Bath. So uh-huh. That's really funny. So you were studying biochemistry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Undergrad in biochemistry. And um, so, yeah, I was in um, Anne Saunders' piece of Alan Rose's lab and um yeah i literally heard somebody saying blah 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 the genetic counselor and the words just kind of lodged in my brain like you know ching this is a this is a thing and then i i met the genetic counselor later but i don't actually remember her name which is kind of tragic um but yeah it seemed like it would be something that might be a really good fit for me um so i actually um, when I went back to the UK and finished my undergrad degree, I looked at the possibilities for training in the UK, which at the time was Manchester, basically. And I contacted them saying, hello, I would like to be a genetic counsellor. Um, but the response that I got at the time was that um, they weren't really looking for people like me. They were looking for people who already had clinical training. So they were looking for nurses and so on. Um, so I kind of I put it on the back burner and went off and did a PhD instead, as you do, um, and then came back to it later. Um, so yeah, yeah, that, that was how it went down. And your PhD was in molecular genetics of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, basically. Um, so yeah, I perhaps naively thought that um, okay, so genetic counselling isn't an option for me. And at the time, I guess I wasn't ready to look outside of the UK. You know, developmentally, I just wasn't there yet for anything beyond an eight-month an eight placement. Um, so, so yeah, I, I thought that by doing a human genetics PhD, perhaps I would get a chance to sort of interact with real-life people, and didn't really, of course. Um, I think I went out and collected control samples once from a blood-donating clinic, but that was about it. Um, but, yeah, it really did fuel my passion for psychiatric disorders, and it was really through that process that I became more aware of my own family history of, of psychiatric illness and aware as well of the need for genetic counselling in that space because my family were asking me questions like, so is schizophrenia genetic? You know, what does that, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you? <laughs> um, and I didn't have the language. I mean, my PhD didn't give me the language to be able to explain 
the sort of very deep, narrow, focused stuff I was doing in a way that was going to be useful for my family or other families like mine. So that was what drew me over to North America to do my genetic counselling training in the end. So back in the uh, Jurassic, when (laughs) I was studying genetic counselling, you know, there were only a handful of programs. Yeah. And they... Their reputations preceded them. Yes. Oh, uh, you should go to Berkeley if you're interested in, you know, psychotherapy and psychosocial right. aspects. So what did I get? What did I get from that? Well, so actually, I, I knew very little. Honestly, I kind of went into it somewhat blind. Um, so I did meet with a genetic counselor um, while I was doing my PhD, Shelley Dugan. Um, who'd graduated from UBC and had good things to say about it. Um, And after my little stint in North Carolina, um, I knew that I didn't really want to go and spend another two years in the US. I mean, I recognise fully that the US is a very large place and North Carolina is only a teeny place within that, but um, I felt... I felt that um, Canada would be like Mm. a a potentially a good option. And so um, I didn't speak French. So my options were UBC and Toronto. Um, and as it turns out, they, they do have sort of somewhat different perspectives on things, but I wasn't terribly aware. Um, yeah, and, and so I ended up in Vancouver. Yeah. When you were thinking about Canada versus the US mm. to do this, were you thinking about sort of professional prospects for genetic counselling or genetic counselling training, or you were just thinking about cultural... Mostly cultural stuff. Um, You know, I, at the time, I really liked Canada's place in the world. Um, This was back when we had a a liberal government before the, before the conservative government took over and now we're back to liberal. But um, yeah, so I liked, I liked Canada's position sort of on the world stage, if you like. It's looking pretty good again, uh, again, right about now. Yes, it is. From where we're sitting. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that, that was a part of it. Um, also, there's other very sort of, not terribly intellectual reasons, but Vancouver was attractive because uh, I'm, I'm a scuba diver. And, um, you know, actually, uh, the scuba diving around Vancouver was Jacques Cousteau's second favourite place in the world to scuba dive, which is a little known fact, but it's true. So, yeah, that was another draw for me. It was one of those things, you know, I, I landed in Vancouver, fell in love with the place immediately and basically decided within a month of having arrived that I was going to have to try and find a way to stay there. And apparently I managed. So that's that's been good. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested in your perception of the field when you were training. Yeah. And the, oh, the evolution. Let me go. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, so I think I approached the field of genetic counselling sort of to enter as a student fairly naively. Um, so I was coming at it from a from an idealistic perspective, I suppose. I mean, you know, so having seen the need that there was for amongst amongst the population of people who live with psychiatric disorders and their families, so much guilt, shame, stigma, fear around explanations for cause that it just felt to me intuitively that genetic counselling was ideally placed to address and nobody seemed to be doing anything about it which seemed to me to be a, a terrible terrible profound disservice um so so really I was drawn into genetic counselling with that motivation and um I didn't really know very much about like the structures that genetic counsellors operated within I suppose so um I mean it, 
it, it didn't it didn't sit terribly well with me honestly um, and I struggled actually as a student I ended up graduating um, profoundly depressed um, for, for a number of reasons but um, you know amongst them was just feeling the toxicity of the relationships between the MD geneticists and the genetic counsellors and not feeling like there was any room in within that structure to um, realise our full potential, really, as, as a group of professionals. And um, that was really frustrating to me, not just at a personal level, but because it felt like patients weren't getting the full benefit of what we had to offer, essentially. Um, so I knew when I graduated that I really needed to be in a role where I was way more autonomous than the traditional structures were going to allow. Um, and happily, I've managed to create uh, that for myself and also for members of my team now, which is really nice. Um, yeah. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> I got off on one. So you graduated from UBC. Yeah. You were profoundly depressed. Yes. And yet you found a way to stay at UBC. Yes. And to change things. Yes. For, for, for myself, at least, yeah. So, okay, so, so the way that I made it work for myself was basically by taking half a step outside of medical genetics. Um, so I, in order to be able to stay in Canada, I had to create myself a job that nobody else could do, basically, because I, you don't get any privileges being from Britain, although most people think that you do. Um, so jobs for genetic counsellors were always going to go to Canadians first, mm. appropriately. So that whole... Uh we're all part of the empire thing is not real. Not really, no, no. So, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I was going to have to create myself a job that only I could do. And so obviously that was going to have to be in the area that I wanted to be in anyway, which was psychiatric genetic counselling. Um, so, so that was essentially what I did. I sort of trawled around and spoke to psychiatrists. Hello, I'm a genetic counsellor. Have you ever thought of hiring a genetic counsellor to be part of your clinical team? And the, the response that I got was, now, what's a genetic counsellor? <laughs> um, but the second person that I spoke to was actually head of the schizophrenia program at UBC. And um, his response, no, what's a genetic counsellor, got back from me, well, would you like to meet for coffee and I'll tell you all about it. So we did, and he basically offered me a job on the spot. I think I bowled him over with my naive enthusiasm. And um, But the problem was he didn't actually have clinical money with which to offer me a job. So he ended up foisting me off on one of his colleagues um, who was a researcher who had some research dollars. So I, this guy, Bill Hona, ended up hiring me, basically saying, I don't know who you are or what you're doing, but apparently I've got to give you a job. So here's an office, here's a computer, do whatever it is you think you're going to do. Um, so I started doing some really sort of resource, non-intensive research projects. So I did like a little web-based survey asking people with psychiatric disorders and their families what they thought about cause and risk and, you know, all of yeah. that stuff. Um, I did a tiny little crappy pilot study where I provided genetic counselling for people and was like, so how was that? <laughs> Basically. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, just like small things that were doable within the constraints of having no resources, basically. Um, and after a few months, um, I met with the guy that had actually been paying my salary and he was like, so what have you been doing? So I showed him some of it and he was like, oh, oh. <laughs> and basically ended up becoming one of my biggest champions and mentors and um, to this day actually remains a, a champion of mine. So he's a psychiatrist. So so really that that's the long and short of it is that I found that 
Even, so you describe medical genetics as being at the bottom of the totem pole within medicine. And then within medical genetics, the histo- my experience as a student was that genetic counsellors were on the bottom rung of the ladder there, you know, within the context of medical genetics. So, you know, shit rolls downhill. Um, and, 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 you know, the student... Is that on your business card? <laughs> So, uh, so, so, so it didn't. It didn't feel like a, a good environment for for anyone, really. But taking half a step outside into psychiatry, suddenly I was unique, and suddenly the skills that I had to offer in my training was was valued. And so I would, you know, as a as a brand new, fresh faced, recent grad, I was getting invites from all over my province to go and speak at grand rounds in psychiatry. And um, so, so yeah, that was literally, you know, it just took off from there, really. Yeah. So I have to ask you about psychiatry in particular because, um, of course, schizophrenia is highly heritable. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's been an overwhelming amount of bad psychiatric genetics. I'm wondering when you said... I'm going to hang out my shingle and I'm going to I'm going to put myself out there as a psychiatric genetic counselor. Um what were you able to say in terms of familial risk? Yeah, right, right. Um so that's one of my favorite questions that I, I used to get back in the day way more than I do now, which was which you know, even from genetic counselors, which was but there's no genetic testing, so so what do you even what do you even say to people? Um, and for me, I, I you know that would literally just provoke a jaw drop from me because again I remember like I think whenever we say things like but we don't know precise numbers to tell people or we don't have genetic testing, we're approaching the problem using our frame of reference. We're saying, unless I've got all of these tools and these pieces of information, there's nothing that I can do that's of value or use for patients. From the patient's frame of reference, that's bullshit. From the patient's frame of reference, if you're talking about psychiatric disorders, you're talking about people who are thinking, it's my fault I have schizophrenia because I smoked way too much pot when I was young. You're talking to about parents who think, it's my fault that my son or daughter has bipolar disorder. There's something I should have been able to do that would have prevented this. You're talking about very basic... So, so these, these questions that we like to imagine that people are coming to genetic counselling with, which are about, what's the gene? Can I have a test? What's the risk? These are intellectual and that's not that's not the root that's not the end of it like the intellectual is what people can easily articulate for us but those intellectual questions are always driven by emotional stuff underneath people don't want to know gene names because they're intellect they they they're, it's because they're they're feeling afraid of being blamed they're feeling guilty they're feeling ashamed they you know all of these emotions is what's driving it and we can address those emotions really effectively we've got data proving it even without being able to offer people genetic testing so you know to me the i i know this is heresy within the genetic counseling community but my my perspective on probabilities well first of all risk does not equal probability we talk about you know what are the empiric risk estimates no it's empiric recurrence rate 
estimates. Risk is entirely subjective. We cannot objectively, numerically quantify it. You know, that, that, that risk and probability are not synonyms. So what, what we provide, I think, is expertise in helping people understand what the probabilities are. But in terms of the perceptions of the severity of the outcome which is another piece of that risk concept, that's what the, the, the patient brings to, the, to that dynamic. Um, yeah, so, so no, there's an awful lot that we can do that's incredibly useful, which I would say is, is the root of what genetic counselling is all about, um, that we don't, we don't need to be able to provide precise numbers for and that we don't need to be able to offer genetic testing. Let's talk about non-directiveness are you just trying to make me twitch? <laughs> I, I wish we had video because that was a that was a beautiful twitch. <laughs> Thank you. Were you taught to be non-directive, and and maybe we should define that. So well, maybe we should. Why don't you go ahead? <laughs> <laughs> Here, here's some rope, Misha. Have have fun. <laughs> definition of non-directive is one of my favorite things it was really dogma i guess that genetic counselors should never betray an opinion and so when a patient asks um what would you do yeah. or what should i do with this risk in, or recurrence rate information this probability that i will have a child with such and such a disease what would you do? And uh, the non-directive approach, philosophy, said that we were not allowed to answer that question and that we were essentially to deflect it and turn it around Absolutely. and yeah. say, you have to make that decision in accord with your mm -hmm. values. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, lovely, thank you. That was a beautiful definition. Um, yeah, so I, ha I have enormous, this won't surprise you probably, but I have enormous issues with the concept of non-directiveness. I, I was a voracious reader of everything philosophical about our field. You know, I don't actually remember getting taught much sort of explicitly and concretely in my training about non-directiveness and this is what it is it was more yeah but there definitely we got this stuff around like if somebody asks you what do you do this is how you deflect that did not sit well with me in a way that I couldn't adequately articulate at the time of course now is you know with <laughs> with however many years worth of experience I can tell you exactly why it didn't sit well with me um and it's it's about it, it basically acts as a barrier to um rapport um, an establishment of that therapeutic alliance, which is actually, we have really good evidence, is the foundation for any and all of the good patient outcomes that we can expect from the interactions that we have with patients. So if what you're doing is, is you're engaging in a one-on-one in -on -one interaction where the point is that to get these great outcomes, empowerment, whatever we're looking for, um, we, in order to get there, we need therapeutic alliance, we need trust, we need rapport, we need all of that stuff. Somebody says, well, what should I do? And you go, kaboom, and slam the door. Well, I can't tell you that because, you know, that, then you've completely undermined the entire thing. So I, I think that um, non like, so I don't know if you've read, um, what's it called? 
Telling Genes, the Alexandra Minna Stern book about the history of genetic counselling. No. Oh, it's so it's, worth a read. It's on my Amazon list. It's great. Now, have a read. Um, because the way that she talks about where non-directiveness came from as a concept is just is beautiful. Briefly, it's it's really, you know, if you, if you actually get to the root of it, it's around our fear of being put in being conceptualized in the same way, you know, eugenics bucket, essentially, right? Um, so non-directiveness, I think, is, is, is a very shorthand way of saying, if somebody comes to us to talk about pregnancy, we're not going to say you should terminate. So, you know, if that's what we mean, if defining non-directiveness, a genetic counselor will not say, you shouldn't have babies. <laughs> Great, yeah, of course, a genetic counselor should never say that. But that's, if somebody says to me, I don't know whether to have this test or not, I'm never going to say to them, well, that's your decision. I can't, like, that's basically saying I can't help you with that. Which, and that's my job, is to help you with that. So, you know, to me, on the background of having established therapeutic alliance and rapport and all of that sort of thing, hopefully I've managed to establish something about the individual's, like, value systems, what matters to them and so on. So I might say something to them like, well, you know, if it was me that was trying to decide whether or not to have this particular test, um, this is how I would think about it. These are the things that are important to me in my life right now. Um, they may or may not be the same as what's important to you. And you've told me this matters, so perhaps it would be different or the same for you. But this is how I would approach thinking about it. Um, and so I'm, I'm not telling people you should do this, but you know, in terms of decisions, re the test, but I am trying to offer some guidance in terms of how to think about making the decision if that's problematic for people. At some point, the that sort of dogmatic insistence has it receded. Yes, it has. I think that we've gotten a far another. There's so many reasons I hate the phrase non-directiveness because so. It, so as well, it's a non, right? It's like, what is genetic counselling? It's non-directive. Okay, so what are we then? Like, what, what, what is it that we do do that's in the positive frame? Like, it's very... I think what, what we really mean, I think, when we say non-directive is that we, we promote patient autonomy. That's what we're trying to say. It's just more words. And <laughs> um, but, but I think for accuracy, that's really what we need to be talking about. Point number... 99 about why I hate non-directiveness it's sorry I'm struggling for a word that isn't bullshit um can't find one so I'm just going to go with that um so it's a good word <laughs> so because we, of course we we did we do help people so in the in the context of psychiatric genetic counseling for example we know that things like smoking lots of cannabis particularly when you're young or using crystal meth these are things that can you know, increase a person's vulnerability for developing psychosis. Now you tell me. <laughs> Sorry, Misha. <laughs> so if I'm sitting with somebody who's saying that they're really concerned about their chances for developing schizophrenia, which is in their family, let's say, yes, I'm going to tell them that they should avoid using cannabis and crystal meth. Yes, I am. Um, well, so another thing that always sort of stuck in my craw about it was that the clinicians were never bound by this, you know. Well, again, that comes from the historical where it's from, you know. So the, the MD geneticists are coming from a purely medical background where, you know, um, 
yeah, we we expect physicians to be, you know, to to be to advise, um, to be, you know, paternalistic essentially, you know, to sort of provide that guidance. Whereas genetic counselling was, you know, the beautiful love child of the of the medical school of of thought, you know, that 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 approach, but also psychology, right? We're also so we're bringing these two pieces together. We've got the Rogerian client centred approach married together with this more medical model and you know so we've got this beautiful (laughs) this beautiful offspring but we just don't really know how to describe it properly and non-directiveness isn't appropriate to my mind you know in in prenatal genetic counseling yes we tell people that we should they should be taking folic acid yes so we we do we do get involved in um providing people with guidance and that is appropriate um, if what we care about is is our patient's best interest, but what we also care about is autonomy. I mean, truly, I think that in terms of um, philosophical approach to patients, we're most closely allied with midwifery, you know, which is also about promoting patient autonomy. So for as long as I can remember, there's been a mantra that we need more genetic counselors. How have we gotten there? I guess I guess what I'm really asking is about sort of the business model. How do you create more genetic counselors and pay them? Mm. So, so in t- so things have changed actually quite dramatically in the last few years. So I think historically um, we've been relatively conservative as a profession about not wanting to train. Um, too many people in case there weren't enough jobs for you know people when they graduated has that ever been true though well I would argue no um, because you know my perspective has always been that we know this this is not this is not new that um, jobs that are advertised represent only the tiny tip of the iceberg in terms of the jobs that are actually out there and that are available so in my own case you know I, I my job wasn't advertised, I created it. Um, you know, yes, it's harder to go out there and convince people I've got this great experience and skill set that could be really useful in your context. But yeah, no, I, I truly believe that, that um, the, the, the world is quite literally our oyster. There's so many more, there's so much more capacity for genetic counselling jobs out there. We just have to make them. Um, and, and, and the thing is, we... We are responsible for that. You know, some yes, sometimes people are going to see our value and say, we would like to hire a genetic counsellor and they'll write the job description for us and we can apply for it. Lovely. But but other times, no, we, we need to show people that what we can do and how we can be useful in their setting. But there's, there's enormous untapped potential for genetic counselling jobs. But even, even just taking that away, even just taking advertised jobs... We have more of those at the moment than we have graduating genetic counsellors. So, you know, that inflection point is past. This, this is why we're working so hard right now um, as a profession um, to expand the number of training slots in existing programmes and to expand the number of programmes. Um, yeah, because, you know, I think we're, we and society are all now on the same page in terms of we, we need to do this. Yeah. In the Canadian system, genetic counseling is fully recognized and... Sorry, I'm laughing. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so I hear from counselors in the States who say, you know, we're still 
running around looking for billing codes. Yep. Um, essentially, it's the it's the psychiatry problem. How do we get a third party to pay us for talking to people? Because yeah. Yeah. what good can that do? Yes. You know, that's not a procedure. Yes. That's not a prescription. Yes. Yes. So what is it like in... What's it like in Canada? Yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, people tend to imagine Canada as being, you know, this utopia um, where things just work. Um, Sorry to burst people's bubbles, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we also have issues. Um, so, so I mean, we, we have a problem of scale, I think, in Canada. Um, so whereas, you know, US measures its numbers of genetic counselors in thousands, we measure ours in hundreds. Um, so this is a problem. Um, we also deliver healthcare in Canada on a province by province basis. So um, any kind of like... Um, recognitions uh licensure type have to be done on a state by state basis or a province by province basis and we just have very small numbers basically so um that presents challenges in terms of regulation um we're working on it but um but yeah critical mass is a is a more of an issue i think in canada than it is in the u.s yeah which is one of the reasons that i have devoted my volunteer energies towards nsgc rather than cagc you know there's just there's critical mass in the US to actually make a difference, which I just, you know, I've, I've not felt that we really have in Canada yet. What made you want to be president of NSGC and, and did you have ambitions, grand or otherwise, and did you realize them? <laughs> yes, I had ambitions, grand, and I don't think I'll ever know if I realized them um, because they weren't, they were, they, weren't, they were always, it was more... So what I what I wanted to do was to help genetic counselors. I wanted to empower genetic counselors, right? We spe- ideally what we spend our time doing is empowering our patients, promoting their autonomy, um, which is kind of ironic when you consider that most genetic counselors actually don't feel particularly empowered or autonomous. Um, so I I came into the presidency wanting to to inspire, really, I suppose, genetic counselors to recognise that we do have power. The way that, you know, the only reason that you, there's that wonderful quote about, you know, the only way that people can take away power is if you give it away, you know. So we, we, we have the power to change some of this. Yes, there's history. Yes, there's infrastructural issues and, you know, but, but we, you know, we have to consent to being subjugated is a strong word to use, but, but I'm just going to use it. Um, we, we, we do have a lot more power than we recognise, I think. I mean, that's shifting, which is nice. Um, so, so really, I wanted to say to people that I'm really, really proud to be a genetic counsellor. Um, I think that our skill set is unique in a very important and special way. We have enormous potential to make a really profound difference in healthcare. And yes, it's just talking. So we need to, we need to tell people why that's so important. We need to be measuring the outcomes of what we do. We need to not be afraid of that because it's actually incredible um, from from the research that my team has been doing. We we do some really amazing things. Let's own it. Let's go out and squawk to people about that. And, you know, I, I also talked a lot in my incoming presidential address about my own experiences with depression and anxiety. You know, I used to think that I couldn't possibly be a a leader because you know I was ashamed of my own experiences I felt it marked me as a like a a liability or a you know yeah a liability of a a potential leader like you know we imagine leaders being 
strong and infallible and all of this stuff. And I, I've been very fallible. Um, so I wanted to sort of show, don't, please don't other me. Don't set me apart and think I'm better than you. I'm not. I, I'm you. But if I can do it, so can you. So can you. We all can do this and we need to do this, not just for ourselves, for our patients. It's, the, it's, it's all about patience. Um, they need to benefit from what we have to offer and they're not going to be able to do that unless we're out there, you know, advocating for ourselves. So that's so so that was my really grand grand goal was to try and create a cultural shift where we don't, you know, externalize things as much, where we where we take on the structures and the hierarchies and say, no, this is not okay. This is this is what I need. I need to spend 45 minutes per patient, actually, not 15 minutes, um, because I care about making a difference for them. And that's the amount of time I need to do that. So I didn't go into the presidency with a, I'm going to complete task A, task B and task C. And those are going to be nice and measurable. Um, and here is the evidence that I completed those tasks. Um, so I don't have that. I'll never have that. Um, and I think I'm okay with that. Um, but it's, I, I, I desperately want to continue encouraging us to move in a direction where we're, yeah, embracing our power. Can I get you to engage in reckless speculation about the sure. future? <laughs> <laughs> Why not? You actually spoke about it, um, that you should have a family physician and you should have a family yes, GC. Yes, counselor, yeah. How do we make that reality? Hmm. Well, I think it would be very nice if there was a, a simple, a simple logically stepped path towards making that happen but I think it's actually going to take um, activity on a number of fronts you know from the very basic helping people know who we are and what we do and how we can be helpful and by people I don't just mean the public I also mean you know the rest of medicine because the rest of medicine still has misconceptions about who we are and what we do I mean in psychiatry I've been you know speaking for years about um about what it is that we can offer and how um, you know we can we can really make a meaningful difference to people. So I shared a case example yesterday um, in in the context of my talk, where um, basically um, the outcome of the genetic counselling I provided was um, for a patient to engage um, for the first time, essentially, in a whole bunch of self management strategies that really minimize the impact of her bipolar diagnosis on her working life so her mental health actually was improved as a result of the genetic counseling just talking no testing provided um so so really meaningful positive outcomes um that was nothing about pregnancy and it was nothing about chances for kids to be affected and again no genetic testing provided so um Helping people to understand that, I think, is a really key, important piece. So, you know, in, in grand rounds that I would do for psychiatry, I would present this case example and I would get um, psychiatrists saying, oh, that's wonderful, that's absolutely great, and then raise their hands and say, well, how do I refer my pregnant patients to you? So <laughs> so these, these, these associations that we have with the term genetic counselling run deep. You know, so and it's it takes work to try and dislodge some of that. Um, but yeah, we need to do it. It's important. It's important that we do. Yeah. Last question. Um, so there are all of these sort of novel places where 
genetics is happening, direct to consumer and increasingly people getting their own exomes and genomes, uh, companies that hire genetic counselors, pay them by the hour to counsel by phone or Skype. What do you make of all of that? It's fabulous. I mean, you know, I think that, you know, this is this is what we need to do. We need to we need to infiltrate as many as many different areas of of healthcare and related um, industries as we possibly can. Because, you know, as I've said, I, like our skill set is unique and it's incredibly transferable. Um, you know, we've seen how how profoundly genetic counselors are being valued by industry. Um, hooray! This is great. Like we 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 are, we are valuable, um, and I think the more that we are seen as having value in other domains, this will trickle back down to the clinical sphere. Um, we're already seeing that starting to happen. I think, um, which is good for us as a profession. But again, it always has to come back to the patients. It's it's critical to patients that they have access to what we have to offer because nobody else can do what we do. Great. Thank you so much. No problem. Pleasure. Thanks to Janine Austin for setting such a high bar right out of the gate. And thanks to you for listening to the Genome Podcast. Don't forget to check out our magazine, which comes out quarterly and is available online for absolutely free at genomemag.com. It's also available by mail. Just go to genomemag.com and click subscribe at the top of the page for a free Dead Tree subscription. Talk to you next time.